I want to start by saying this, how truly beautiful it is to be able to sit in here in this room with you. We have uh, had times where we've had this room full of people. And we've watched people make noise and scutter and do lots of things. But in the end, our heart's desire is for God to bear forth sweet fruit. And my heart's desire, first and foremost, is that God bring in those that are hungry for his word, that are hungry to know him, and hungry to be changed, hungry to be made more like him. Not to take a box. Let's face it, we're not the shortest or the most convenient gig on the planet. And if you're coming to take a box or you're coming to find something convenient or comfortable, we may not be your place. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I recognize we're not for everyone, nor should we be. But if my prayer is that the Lord would, and he has been doing much of that, but it's that he would just weed out those that don't belong here. That doesn't mean that they're bad or evil, horrible. Well, they are because they're humans. We're all evil, horrible. But that he would bring in those, Lord, that would, that would make this place so sweet. And that it would be the family God intended. That those that are fringing it all would be driven in. And those that are in would be driven closer. You know, hey, look it. So it's a little cold here and there. Praise God for jumpers. And to be honest, y'all look good in them. So that's all right. Uh, Praise God that it is uh, not the most inconvenient place. There are places people have to walk miles to get to. And, you know, we have to round a corner and look for a steeple. But I just want you to know, I'm just really thankful we get to do this. And I'm so thankful that we get to praise the Lord and study his word without somebody telling us 20 minutes is too much, without someone telling us that, you know, okay, two songs and then get to it and this thing needs to be done in 42 and a half minutes or whatever. I'm just really thankful we get to do this and just be in the presence of the Lord and enjoy him. So having said that, and I expect some really fun things today. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hands. Let's get one to you. And we're going to open it up to Matthew 22, please. Again, we're on the Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week, which means in two days Jesus will have his last supper and be arrested, and in three days Jesus will be murdered. That puts us kind of where we're at. We're in, Jesus is in the temple and he's being approached one by one. The last thing he had done, I remind you, was he told us a parable about a man, a king, who arranged a marriage for his son. And when he arranged the marriage for his son, if we're going to be completely honest, uh, people really dealt with it in very strange ways. I mean, the honored guests, the ones that you would expect to be invited, really made light of it, didn't seem to be concerned about it at all. They were too busy with their businesses, with their their stuff. Uh, And then there were those that actually were even more so. They were declaring war against the guy who was in, I remind you, the kingdom of heaven was like a feast. Kingdom of heaven wasn't like drudgery. It wasn't like a box to tick. It wasn't like a duty to to do. It was like a, a party, a great, beautiful party without any sin. And in that, what we find is, is that there were those that, even though all the servants were doing were inviting, I remind you, they weren't bringing forth some form of angry, nasty, sort of abrasive manner to them. They were just inviting them to the feast, and people beat them up and killed them. 
And then there was a guy who actually went in. So they went, they went and gathered anyone, anyone, bad and good, anyone. Everyone's invited to the feast. And as everyone's invited to the feast, there was a man that was in there that wasn't willing to stand for the wedding, that wasn't willing to wear the wedding clothes, even though the king would issue those to every person. And as it was the case, when we're in a crazy situation where now the king realizes that there's somebody clearly and openly defying the wedding, will not submit to the, the king, will not submit to the, uh, or will not endorse the wedding, and therefore is ultimately removed. Now, once Jesus has done that, we read in verse 15 is where we pick it up. We read the word then. And the word then tells us that Jesus is bouncing off of that idea. Bouncing off of the idea that there are those who, though being invited, will have no interest in coming. They have Their business is too important for the king's business. Their stuff is too important for the king's business. And they'll even be violent and declare war against the king. Here now we read in verse 15 and read along with me. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples with the Herodians saying, (coughs) 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 Excuse me, that's not for dramatic effect. That was me clearing my throat for Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God and truth, and do not care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and he said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Well, most Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, when he heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, in the stillness of the moment, captivate us now. By the power of your Spirit, make your word burst open and come alive. Speak to us in such a beautiful and rich and profound way that we find ourselves enthralled, amazed, drawn in, captivated by your word, and deeper and more meaningfully in love with you. God, I thank you so much for the privilege today of being able to seek you in your word. Now, Lord, redeem every second. Let this time be perfectly spent time, we pray. We commit this day to you. We pray, Lord, that today every one of us would be personally spoken to, that we as a family will be spoken to, but also, God, that individually you will bespoke a word to each of us. So, God, we commit this time, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak now. Take my lips and attach them to your heart and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit would say to this church now, we pray. So we commit this time to you. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume I'm telling the truth because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, there's a problem with Roman coins. 
Um, first of all, let me say the clearest problem is that they're losable. I actually have a Roman denarius, but for whatever life of me, I can't seem to find it. And that's very, very sad because usually when I like to teach through a text like this, the first thing I'd like to do is show you a Roman denarius. It's a silver coin and it's almost exactly the same as this. Uh, this is actually another Roman coin. And you'll see the, the problem with a Roman coin like this, uh, <clears throat> and I'm assuming that I'll find it, but even if I don't, what the Lord's done, to, is, to be honest, uh, by doing that has made me look beyond that, which will really, uh, has really blessed me in this particular study of the word here. But the problem with a Roman coin like this is it'll have the Roman governor of the day, the Roman emperor, but on the back will have a, usually have some form of Roman god. And because it has a Roman god on the back of it, it was not acceptable in the temple. And that's acceptable, that's understandable. Why bring in something that has the image of another god when obviously God starts his commandments with not having another god before him and making no graven image. And here's a graven image that people are passing around. This is why there were tax, I'm sorry, this is why there were uh, money changers in the temple courtyard area. Remember Jesus flips over the coins of the money changers because you couldn't bring these kind of coins into the temple proper because to be honest, if you did that, you actually could be arrested, which is funny because Jesus is in there now. And of course, they're going to bring him a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. Now, if we kind of do the general you know, math on that, basically, believe it or not, that runs out to somewhere around 42,000 pounds or so uh, a year is what we actually the average income is in London. Now, most of us look around and go, who's making that? Someone clearly is making a whole lot more than that because I have a feeling we're on the other side of that curve. So let me start with this. That on every Roman coin, you can expect this. That on one side of it is the Roman emperor or, or the leader. In some cases, it would be, for instance, the king of the area, like this particular coin I wear around my neck, is that of Agrippa I. When we get to Acts, that will become clear why. But on the back, usually the one that sort of the, if you will, sort of the God that the emperor seems to sort of liken himself to the most. He would sort of, if there was one he sat under. And there was a general rule among the Jewish populace that whatever coin you spend, you are declaring the lordship of the head that is actually on the coin you're using. That's kind of the idea. But now let me kind of run you through a little bit of the political scenario here. And I'll kind of get to our text. And it really just makes it simple. But I really have to at least help us understand who Jesus is dealing with. Now, during the days of Jesus, he's running into certain, if you will, religious political parties, religious political. Certainly the two that we know the most are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But let me kind of explain it quickly, their origin, because I want you to understand the history behind this. First of all, you may be aware of the fact that the southern tribes of Judah and, and actually of Benjamin were taken captive in 586 B.C. after three exploits by the Assyrian army. Most of them were deported 900 miles east to the area today of Iran. That would be Babylon today, if you will. And while they were there, uh, while most of them were taken captive, God had promised, by the way, that he would restore them. He told them, by the way, every seventh year that they were to give a land rest. It's called the Eretz Shabbat, if you will, the Sabbath of the land. And for 490 years, the people of Israel hadn't done that. Now, much like us, by the way, the more we turn our back on God, the harder work becomes. Have you noticed that? The more laborious and arduous work becomes. Because if we're not seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, chances are what's happening is we work a lot harder and get a lot less out of it. Well, in that same way, what happens is, is that, unfortunately, then you find yourself having to work harder and harder and more and more, which only then seems to afford you less time for God than more. Now, having said that, that the land hadn't rested for 490 years, 
And so God tells us then well, that he's going to demand. He doesn't charge interest. We can be thankful, but he's going to demand that land rest. So let me ask you, for those of you who are relatively quick on math, what's one-seventh of 490? Excellent, 70 years. That's why they're in captivity for 70 years. I mean, along other reasons of their disobedience, but that's why the time period of 70 years. God's going to give the land its rest, and it does. But when the people come back, now everything's very different. The people had idols they were worshiping prior to that. God sends them to idol capital so that they'll never want to worship another idol, and it works, by the way. You never see another idol in Israel upon the return. And of the two-plus million people that were taken captive in those three exploits, on the first chance they have to return, only 49,893 people return, uh, led by a man named Zerubbabel, and they're going to go rebuild the city. They're going to rebuild the temple, and then Ezra comes back on his second exploit to actually help rebuild the people, and then on the third, Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And as that happens now, we kind of look and we're like, well, who are we now? I mean, we don't have a king anymore. When we were taken captive, we had a king. We don't have a king anymore. We don't want a king anymore. What do we do? Who leads us now? Well, maybe it should be the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. The problem is, well, what guy do we make as the high priest? So they chase the lineage back to a guy named Zadok. Zadok, by the way, from 2 Samuel 8, when God speaks his covenant to David, happens to be the high priest in the days of David. Now, the people who were family, if you will, direct lineage of Zadok, then would be called Zadokites, or we might say Sadducees, Zadokian. There's the idea. Now, imagine, if you will, you woke up one day, you were direct relatives of a guy that you never really knew because he was your great-great-grandfather, if you will, great-great-grandfather. And, and somehow, and it's like, by the way, now, look at, oh, you're a Windsor. Guess what property you get? And all of a sudden, you come back to the land, and there you are in your land. You get Buckingham Palace. You get Ethan Palace. You get Windsor Castle. I mean, imagine what that would be like to get all of this property, having not earned any of it, simply because, quite honestly, you were from their lineage. So the Sadducees were, for the most part, but they were never elected to be a Sadducee. First and foremost, they were a group of people that basically, because of their surname, because of their family lineage, were basically very rich landowners. Could you imagine being a wealthy landowner in London? There are people like that. We know that because streets and even areas are named after them. Now, with that in mind, <coughs> they were because they were very wealthy and because land was kind of their capital, if you were the emblem of Judaism to the Sadducees was the greatest piece of property that Israel possessed. Now, what would be that piece of property? It would be the temple. So as far as the Sadducees were concerned, Judaism equaled that temple, that building, that property. And therefore, you can always try to tell when somebody's trying to pit you against the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees, no, granted, now it's not, it's more than just the family, but they didn't even believe in anything they couldn't see. They were very much material people. So that means that they, if they couldn't see an angel, then they didn't believe in him. So they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. We'll see that next week when they try to nail Jesus. But what they were in the simplest sense is they were the naturalists that might show up at church that say, I don't believe in anything I can't see, which is kind of a strange thing, let's be honest, because God's invisible. We're aware of that. So anytime they're trying to pit Jesus against the Sadducees, all they have to try to do is say, well, Jesus spoke against the temple, and that's about, about as bad as you can get as far as the Sadducees are concerned. Can, does that make sense? But like any kind of movement, especially in a very big liberal movement, there's, the pendulum's always going to swing wide the other way, and there's going to be a counter-movement, like the Reformation. The counter-movement in this case was a group of people who desired to be separate. 
separate from the whole naturalist mindset. They were, in essence, let's get back to the Bible, and we're going to go and really make sure we really read and study the Torah, and we're going to make sure that we study beyond that the law and the prophets, and we're going to really dive down, and we're going to be the theologian of the day. And what we find is the people were parashim, parashia, if you will, which means separatists, as we get the term Pharisees. So the Pharisees were... If they'd stopped a little, you know, right of the, of the middle, they probably would have done very well. But like most counter movements, there's an extreme on one side and it usually means there's going to be an extreme on the other. So on one side, you have the radical liberal. That's the Sadducee. And on the other side, you have the radical legalist. Who's the radical who, on the other side then? And they were the ones who had scribes. Scribes were guys who read the law, tried to interpret the law. So it said, well, what does it really mean to keep the Sabbath? Well, you can't carry anything heavier than two dried figs. That's carrying a burden because what how heavy is a burden? And they were the guys who interpreted it. It was kind of a sadomasochistic relationship. The scribes said, these are all the things you can't do. And then the Pharisees tried to live them out. But the problem is, is that these were guys who then imposed those personal convictions on everyone. Now, please understand the difference between a person of high conviction and a legalist. If it says it in Scripture, it's just Scripture. There it is. You have to deal with it. It's the truth. But beyond simple truths, there are personal convictions God will place every one of us. Those personal convictions, to be honest, are things to keep you away from potential weaknesses you may personally possess. For some, that may be something sexual or sensual. For some, that may be in areas of addictions like alcohol or drugs. Well, by the way, if it, let's face it, who wants to, why should you be stoned anyways? You have Jesus Christ. You, to be honest, sober-minded makes more, much more sense. Some it may be in areas of things like gambling or, and it may, you know, and again, if we're going to be all honest, these things are all questionable areas to start with. But there are people who can't watch any movies or can't listen to any music. And there are some people who are completely unaffected by most everything they listen to. Now, when you have a personal conviction, that is again to keep you out of the flesh. That is not being a legalist. That's being safe. You become a legalist when you take a personal conviction and impose it on everyone else and say they're horrible, rotten people unless they keep that with you. Now, in your household, that might make sense. Look, if you have a weakness with something and we want to bring it in your house, that's unloving for us to do that. But when it comes to general convictions, we honor the conviction because we love each other. But what the Pharisees were doing is they were demanding that whatever those things that they held as convictions were now universal. And there becomes the problem. So what we have on the one side, we'll see the Sadducees again next week. But what the Pharisees were then is they were the theologians. They were the experts of the law, if you will. And they were the ones who hated Rome. We would expect that. Now, there were more extreme groups, by the way. There was a group called the Essenes. And the Essenes, by the way, they were cavemen. They lived in caves because they just, they were kind of like end times cult guys. They didn't want anything to do with anyone. They just wanted to hide out in a cave. And then there were guys called the Sakari. Sakari, by the way, the word Sakari means knife. It's a dagger. It's the smaller one. And, and these were guys that were, in, in essence, your guerrilla terrorists. They would kind of lead Roman soldiers out into certain areas, and then they would attack them and knife them to death. You kind of see that happen around here. If you're honest, there are Sakaris here. Just not necessarily, well, even in for police, to be honest. But the two main groups, again, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, there was another group, by the way, and I, I remind you, the, the Pharisees, forgive me for getting a little political, but we have to understand that for what we're dealing with. The Pharisees, in the simplest sense, because they were separate from all the naturalist stuff, all of the secular stuff, they really wanted to make sure you knew that they were separate from everything on the outside. But inside, they were just as full of evil as anyone else. They just didn't see it. 
And that can be a real danger, by the way, when we play that way. But then there was another group. They were soft to Herod's regime. Now, Herod, I remind you, was, was a, he was a weird cat, if you will. He was mixed race. Because Herod was Edomian, if you will. He was from the tribe, if you will. He was from Edom, Edomites. By the way, today that's Jordan. Now, if you're familiar, that's Esau. Esau is, if you will, the twin brother of Jacob. So, in essence, he was a son of Abraham, but he wasn't a son of Abraham uh, like we'd like him to be. He wasn't a son of promise. So, he had, in essence, Abrahamic blood inside of him. But he was also very, very, well, if you will, he was working for Rome. So there were those who were like, well, we should kind of, you know, we should really be nice to Herod because he can give us benefits. It's the kind of person that sort of sucks up to try to be nice to someone because he thinks he can get political benefits for it. So the Herodians were people that were soft to Rome. And the reason I say that is, is notice the group that's approaching Jesus here to try to trap him in his words. Notice it isn't just the Pharisees. Did you notice it's the disciples of the Pharisees? So imagine, and by the way, this that tells you Jesus wasn't the only one who had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. All disciple means, mathitikos in the Greek, it means students. So imagine, if you will, you've got a group of Pharisees. Again, we're the hardcore legalists. We're the guys who are known for what we don't do. Let's be honest. We don't do this. We don't do that. And with that, then, they have a group of students, and they're like, class, today, this is what we're going to do. Make your teachers proud. Do you want to pass the class today? Stump that guy out there that's teaching, that cult leader they call Yehoshua, Jesus. You guys shut him down, I'll pass the class. You'll all get A stars for it. You guys ready? Well, they're like, well, what do we say? Well, you have to trap him. You have to put him in a place where his back is against the wall. But here's the point. How do you really trap God? Exactly how smart do you think you are that you can stand before God and really put him in a corner? And this is what they do. They pick the group of people they would have the least in common with. I mean, and you're aware, do you take two groups of people that are opposite of each other? How do you make them friends and give them a common enemy? And what the Herodians and what the Pharisee students had in common is they all hated Jesus because he was flipping the tables of everybody. Now, Herodians, of course, are going to be strong in paying taxes to Caesar because they're friends of Herod. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are completely going to stand against paying taxes to Caesar because they hate Herod and Rome. So the two groups show up to Jesus and they're going to trap him because this is one of those places, if you think about it, where they're telling Jesus it's one or the other. You're going to have to pick a side. Are you going to pick it with us, the Pharisees, or are you going to pick it with us, the Herodians? Because you can't pick both. And by the way, <coughs> excuse me, let me warn you, this is going to happen in the church if you're not careful. People start playing out these certain doctrinal roles on you, and you're like, which way do you stand? Do you stand on God's election, or do you stand on man's free will? You know, are you like an electoral kind of guy, or are you a free willy? You know, in the end of it all, show me in Scripture where I had to pick a side. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's this or that. You're like, well, if it's in Scripture, then it's in Scripture. I have to believe it. So they try to get Jesus pinned behind all of this. And as they try to get Jesus pinned behind all of this, they notice it says that they've now made this, they've had this meeting. It tells us, by the way, they went and plotted. Look at verse 15. Went and plotted tells us that this wasn't them kind of rolling off the cuff. They had a meeting. They had a meeting where they sat down and the Herodians more than likely on one side, the Pharisee disciples on the other. And they said, how do we trap Jesus? Because we clearly have him in common that we all hate him. So here's what we're going to do. Let's try this. Let's play the taxes game with him. So they sent their disciples, the Pharisees, and the Herodians came. And they begin with these four statements. Did you notice this in verse 16? Now, 
we know that you're true. You teach the way of God in truth. You don't care about anyone, nor do you regard the person of men. Now, for what it's worth, this is actually a real common approach to anybody that's considered a ruler or an important person. The term is called captatio benevolentiae. Captatio benevolentiae means that when you approach a dignitary, you start with sort of a, a few kind words. You see it a lot when we get to the book of Acts. Or like, you know, oh, Felix or Festus or Agrippa, we know for so long you've been this way and you've granted us prosperity and peace. I mean, those kind of statements to start with, <coughs> excuse me, those kind of statements are called captatio benevolentiae, and they do that with Jesus. And here's what they say. They start with this. We know that you're true. Aletheos is the word. Now, theos, if you will, means in the simple sense you're transparent. What you see is what you get. You're a straight shooter. And I like this about him. That you're not like the average politician or leader out there. You're not double-faced or kind of playing the crowd. You're kind of who you are. Now, don't miss this. Because if we really want to be like Jesus, and we really want to be people that are like, you know what, I really want to, I want to grow to be like Christ. And yet what we're being told is you kind of have to go and try to blend in with your surroundings everywhere. And then we use this ridiculous misuse of the text where Paul says, I was all things to all men. So therefore... I should go get stoned with the people who are getting stoned. And I should go and rob with the people who rob. And I should go rolling with the, you know, with the thugs. You know, Daniel, man, you just want to go and step on that bandana. And, you know, Daniel wants to go and blend in with the people in Calais. Imagine he's trying. Right? I mean, look, at there's one thing about not <coughs> what Paul was saying in that, by the way, is I did all that so I could win some. I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. So if I'm in Chelsea, I'm not going to go wearing an Arsenal shirt if I'm trying to share with people because somehow they won't even listen to me at that point. That's what Paul was saying. He wasn't just saying he was trying to blend in. And somewhere it's like the church has had to try to learn how to become the friend of the world, but the scripture says being a friend of the world is being an enemy of Christ. What we find here is they're saying, you know, one thing's for sure, you're just, you're just who you are, Jesus. It seems to me like on last Tuesday you were pretty much the same guy as you are today. When you were in front of the religious leaders, you're no different than you are when you were in front of the prostitutes and beggars. You seem to be the same guy regardless. And that's where they start this. Well, that's who you are, Jesus. You're just kind of a simple, transparent guy. The second thing, it says you teach the way of God in truth. The word truth is the same word, Aletheia, if you will. In the simplest sense, you teach it straight and simple. You're not trying to do something. You're not trying to impress us. You're not trying to teach for some other end. And that's usually the point. So here we are. This place where, you know, someone's teaching you and they're leading you by the nose and they're telling you beautiful stories and getting you caught up in it. But in the end of it all, what you're winding up with is that then they're going to do some kind of huge offering at the end because the whole message is led up to basically getting into your pocket. And some of you have been at those kind of places. And they're like, you know, I've just never seen you do that. I mean, you basically say this is what the Word says. I mean, imagine the living Word is teaching the Word. You would imagine to do it accurately. But like, you're just doing it straight. There's no real fancy, weird thing about it. Which, by the way, the people who are speaking to them have learned to do otherwise. Nor do you care about anyone, nor do you regard the person of men. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus cared about everyone. Well, that's the point. The term care her, but for, the, for what it's worth, the word mello. Mello, by the way, means, not like mello, like we're all just relaxed. Mello means to be a person of concern or interest. In other words, a person who might walk in that might seem a little less well-dressed, a little less showered, 
Jesus goes, man, you just don't look at a person like that and go, uh, and just instantly have some form of prejudice against them. On the other side of it, you don't regard the person of men either, in the word there, blepo, in the idea of to hold on to prospora, the idea of holding on to a person, if you will, sucking up. So what you have is, Jesus, you are real, you teach real, or you are true, you teach true, you care true, and you live true. You care true, it doesn't matter if a guy comes in and he looks like he's just ratted out, or another guy that comes walking in and he looks like he's kind of, you know, sporting the Tom Ford three-piece. Regardless of the situation, because you just don't seem like you're busy playing favorites. So because you don't play favorites, well, let me ask you, you're going to have to choose one on this now. Do you choose us, the Pharisees, or do you choose us, the Herodians? Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? No, it's important to note here again in this. The, Jesus' teaching on this makes clear where Paul will build on to simple standards in Romans 13. In Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Let everyone, every soul, that includes you, be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are actually appointed by God. Six verses later in Romans 13, 7, it says, Well, then, therefore, render what is their due. Taxes to whom are due, customs where are due, fear to fear, honor to honor. He says, look it, if you own taxes, pay taxes. Now, is there ever a time when you actually don't follow a government? Only when they demand that you sin. And we have example of that, for instance, with Peter and John in the book of Acts. When the religious leaders tell them to shut up about the name of Jesus Christ. At which point they give this answer, we must obey God rather than you. Now, without twisting that into your own personal selfish gain, that has to be the only time when you back down. <clears throat> when a government says you must get an abortion, when the government says you must steal, you must kill innocent lives, well, then that's up to you. But clearly, you can say, I have to obey God, not man. But if a government allows sin, you still have to pay him taxes. And if we're going to be honest, we think, well, but our government's corrupt. It's a government. Is it surprised us it's corrupt? Every government's corrupt. Paul is writing to the Romans, and the Romans were infinitely more corrupt than our government is. And if Paul could tell the, the Romans that they had to do that, don't you think all the more? Imagine if the government knew us as people who didn't break the law. Weren't busy out there trying to set things. Oh, actually, we're kind of not known for those things, are we? That's another group. And there are other groups out there that they know us as different things. Look at the guys who are sitting out there with cups. There's like an unspoken handbook. You want to get more money? Get a dog. Have you noticed that? If you want to get more money, put a Bible out. Have you noticed how many people lately sit with a Bible next to them while their cup is out asking for a moment? Why, why isn't it that they, why don't it's the Koran out? Why don't they have the teachings of Buddha out? Because they know the one group of people that will be most apt to help them out will be people that probably in one way or another have their allegiance to that book. Now, here's the point in it. They're looking at Jesus and they realize, you know, you are really true. So I know you're not going to lie. I know you're not going to play me here. I know this isn't some political game. In the end of it all, I need to ask you a simple question. Give us a simple answer. Well, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, clearly, from our perspective, we know from Romans, that's not an option. We pay taxes. 
But Jesus, notice in verse 18, perceives their wickedness, and he says to them, why do you even try to test me, hypocrites? Hypocrite means they're a mask wearer. It's all what the word means. If you will, the simplest term is an actor. Now, today, look at actor is not a bad term. That's a profession. I get that. But acting is not something we're supposed to do in the church. This is the place where we're to be like, well, we should be like Jesus everywhere in this sense. We, I mean, when people see you and they know you, they should say, well, not, I know Bruno. What you see is what you get. He's not playing me. There's no alternative means to what he's doing. The guy's for real. That's what you want to hear because that's what you want to be because that's who Jesus was. So Jesus looks at me and goes, boy, if there was anybody who should be trying to answer this question, it should be you guys. So he says, show me the money. So somewhere they have to pull it out. Now, whether they have it, it just tells them they brought it. If they brought it, it tells me that it must not have been readily available. So maybe someone has to go back out somewhere in the courtyard, go to the money changer and get them a coin. And it's got, again, on one side of it, it's got the face of Caesar. And so they ask, well, whose inscription is this? They say, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus gives us this simple standard. If it's made in Caesar's image, then it belongs to Caesar. It's just that simple. But Jesus doesn't just go there. Notice there's not an or with Jesus, there's an and. And Jesus doesn't just say, well, look, at if it's made in Caesar's image, well, then it should just go to Caesar's. And he doesn't end it there, but he says, and. If you're going to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, then you better also give to God what belongs to him. Well, this is simple math, right? It had Caesar's image, and therefore it belongs to God, to Caesar. Well, what belongs to God? It must be that which has God's image. Now, Jesus is looking at people. <clears throat> and as he's looking at people, it is important to recognize that he's looking at Pharisees, students, and Herodians, who I remind you, Jesus just taught us there was an invitation to come to the feast, and there were those who really didn't want to come. And they were, I mean, they just kind of made light of it. But then there were others who really took a stand against that. To the point where they had nothing, that they didn't want anything to do with the king or the wedding that he was actually seeking to speak on, that he was seeking to have. And now we see those guys right in front of us. And so Jesus looks at them and he goes, if this isn't an issue of robbing Caesar at this moment, you really think that that's a big issue? Let's talk about robbing God. Now, how far do you have to get? How many chapters do we have to get in Scripture before we find out what's made in God's image? It's in the first chapter, verses 26 and 27, just to make it clear. We don't read that God made the universe in his image. We don't read that God made the plants or the oceans or the mountains in his image. We read that all of those things tell us, they tell, they speak of his majesty and his glory. But they're not made in his image. There's only one thing in Scripture that we read is made in, God, made in God's image. And what is that, beloved? You. You are made in God's image. We read in one, <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our own image. And in our likeness. So in the image of God, he made a male and female, he made them. Image, tzalem, is the, is the term in the Hebrew. Tzalem is in, comes from the idea of casting a shadow. God, in essence, we're supposed to be the shadow of the living God. Well, some might say, well, you know, let's face it, that was before the fall, after the fall, man's still not made in God's image. Strange enough, actually, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, which is after the flood, by the way, God reiterates it again when he says, whoever sheds man's blood, it tells us, by the way, is guilty by man's blood. He was shed, for in the image of God, he made man. 
Now, granted, we can be honest, we've marred that image. But as we've, as we've marred that image, that still doesn't keep us from the clear teaching Jesus gives us here, that if it's made in his image, it belongs to him. So I got to thinking about this, because obviously this is as far as Jesus has to go with these guys, and this is it, and they're amazed. The word is marveled as we see it here, and then they leave. <clears throat> For the religious leaders who taught, by the way, currency denotes lordship of the one whose image it bears. <clears throat> I started to think about this because what God starts to tell us is, is that we're actually his currency. And that's something I started to roll around in my mind for a minute. Wait a minute. We're God's currency. What do you have currency for? You spend it to get what you want. You spend it to help yourself, to bless yourself, right? Is that what, I mean, imagine, prayerfully, you spend it also to bless others. And I started to think, well, how is my life being spent? How am I as God's currency being spent? By the way, giving your life to Jesus Christ, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, we read from the moment you said yes to him, from the moment you said yes, he started conforming you back into his image. He started repairing the image we have marred that was placed upon us at our creation. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Let's see how good you are with this. I have two coins in my hand here, and if I could hold them up, can anyone tell me, by the way, what this particular coin is? I know it's pretty far away, isn't it? It's kind of hard to see. This is a two-shilling coin. Can anyone tell me how much a two-shilling coin would have been worth 100 years ago? That was brilliant. It was worth two shillings was worth two shillings. Yes. How much was a shilling? Does anyone know, basically? Shilling was basically worth five pence. So basically this was a dime. This was worth ten pence. There you go. Here's another one. This, by the way, is a half crown. Can anyone tell me how much a half crown was worth? What's that? Two shillings six. Yeah, so if you will, it's basically worth somewhere between twelve pence often uh, arguably up to 20. But basically, that's what we're looking at. Now, these in their day were actually quite an important deal. Today, maybe as a collector's item, you may be able to have one here and there. You can go to certain antique fairs and they're like, a, you know, they're really, really cheap if you can find ones that aren't really well kept. Here's the point. There was a time when this was really worth something. Having a handful of crowns in your pocket was a pretty big deal. I mean, back in those days, a penny actually meant something. I mean, today, what in the world does a penny do? But, you know, you get a couple of them, you can kind of keep your, you know, your table from wobbling. But, but there was a day when pennies meant something. By the way, that was before my day, too. I just want to make that clear. But let me just say something. This currency at a time was really worth something, and it was important. People killed for this. People stole this. People chased after this. They woke up in the morning trying to plan their day around getting these, and they went to sleep at night plotting how to get more of them. They saved them. They saved them under their beds. Sometimes they invested them with hopes to get more. But today, well, they're not worth anything. You know why? Because the currency is obsolete. The age is gone, and this isn't the age of this anymore. Are you following me so far? Well, let me show you something you may have never seen before. This is a lot more rare. 
take a look at this. I'm going to hand out a couple of these, but you are going to give them back, right? I trust you. I'm going to give you the big one right here. So now I'm just, sure. Take a look at this. Sam has been memorizing who's been holding them. Does, can anyone tell me what you're holding in your hands? Ooh, look at these guys are big money. This is not contemporary American money. What you are holding in your hands is Confederate dollars. You're probably aware of it. In the 1860s, America was in the heat of a civil war. A lot of the argument, of course, was over the issue of slaves. We're aware of that. The South, in the 1960s, minted their own money. They were called the Confederates. These are then therefore called Confederate dollars. Maybe some of you have heard the term... Thank you. Maybe some of you have heard the term as worthless as a Confederate dollar. Well, this is where that comes from. Notice they're printed in gray versus, thank you, being printed in green. American money is printed in green, and we call it a greenback. Confederate money is printed in gray, and therefore it's called a grayback. Now, why is this money worthless? Because the Confederate Government, the Confederacy that sponsored this, lost the war. And because it lost the war, the money was worth nothing. And ultimately, the United States had to become united again. And as they were united again, they no longer then were able to endorse Confederate money and went with the greenback to this day. Now, let's face it, we're facing now something even weirder. Because we have something in our country now that we have never seen before. Plastic money. You guys have seen this, right? I mean, did anyone ever hand you one of those? And if you weren't well informed, you were kind of like, excuse me, can I have real money, please? Because I'm not really sure about this plastic stuff you're trying to give me here. Well, here's the point. Was this at one point legitimate currency? In some places, yes. With the promise, by the way, that if we win... And the we, by the way, wasn't me because I was a northern kid. If we win, this is going to be our currency, so you might want to start stockpiling it. But it's worthless because the Confederacy lost. What about the shillings and the crowns? Were they at one time legitimate currency? Sure, but the age has been and gone, right? Now, ultimately, today, we don't use shillings. We don't use crowns, and we certainly don't use Confederate dollars. But they were currency at the moment in their place. Now, what if you'd spent all your money in the Confederate Army and did everything you spent and you invested everything in Confederate dollars? What would happen once the Confederate Army lost the war? In April, I believe it was 19, or 1865, when ultimately General E. Lee surrendered. What was that worth? You would have spent all your money, invested all your life in a currency that is meaningless now because you joined the wrong side. Beloved, please hear me in this. You are a currency, and you are God's currency, and you are choosing to be spent, but you have to pick wisely where your life is going to be spent. 
Because this is only an age and this age is going to pass. And when this age passes, the currency that you are will be worthless if you put yourself in a place that's only invested in the age and not in that which transcends. And so maybe you're putting yourself in a place where it's like you don't understand. Everything's about me being 20. Everything's about me having hair and being good looking and being young and being charming or being charismatic or whatever. But all of those things come and go. Those have an age. But unfortunately, they have an age because they age. And if the best you've got is what you've got right now, then you'll spend the rest of your life trying to get back to it. And all you're trying to do at that point is trying to petition to get the crown back in circulation, but no one's going to do it. And maybe that's where you're at. You've got a life right now, but everything in your life that's being spent is being spent on the temporary. And so what happens in the end? Think about yesterday. It was Saturday for every one of us. How much of your time was spent at all in anything that even remotely reflected eternity? Hey, that doesn't mean you don't work. That doesn't mean that you don't go out and get something to eat. But in everything we do, is there a scent of eternity on it? Is it bearing forth the image of the eternal creator? Or is it the image of a guy, to be honest, that nobody knows anymore that was on the cover of the Confederate Five? Because he was a leader of a Confederate army. But that takes us even beyond that. One day we're all going to stand before the living God as God's currency. And you realize we're the only currency God spends. The unbeliever is not God's currency. Though they're created in God's image, they have surrendered themselves to be counts tendable to somebody else, to the losing confederacy that is going to stand before God judged one day, and it's going to be meaningless. Every single investment into the confederate dollar became worthless. But at the moment, if the confederacy had won, they would have really banked big. But we know that the world we live in, we've already read the end of the story. And we know who wins. And we also know who loses. To be honest, we already know who lost. And I want to ask, how much of our life is going to really be spent where it should be spent? Whether that's the talents God actually calls us accountable for when we stand before him and we say, hey, I put it in a risky market, but I do know this. It was still under yours. You owned this. Or we say, well, we hid it in the earth and we just tried to make it look like everything else. Now, I'm not here to condemn, but I am here to challenge more than you. I'm here to challenge me. If we were to hear Jesus teach us and just speak to us right now, I'm sure he would say the same thing. Hey, render unto the queen that which belongs to the queen. Render under the crown, that which belongs to the crown. And, not but, or or. And, render under the king, that which really belongs to the king. You were bought with a price, beloved. You're not your own. 
And because you were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, glorify God. Do you know what it means to glorify God? It means let them see him for who he really is in you. If someone, if the, think, think for a moment in your head, the three closest friends you have, the ones you spend the most time with. Some of you, that's fairly easy. You married them. But that's one, but you still got others. I just want to ask you, if I sat down with those three friends and said, if Jesus were Dennis, what kind of guy would Jesus be? If Jesus were Daniel, what kind of guy would Jesus be? If Jesus were Hugo, what kind of guy would Jesus be? If Jesus were Maureen, what kind of guy would he be? If Jesus were Lorraine, your best friend, what kind of guy would he be? Because if we're gonna, if we really do belong to him, then we really should glorify him. People should really see Jesus for who he really is. Could you imagine what that would be like? Would they see he's kind? Would they see he's forgiving? Would they say that he's amazing? Would they say that he's pure? Would they say that he's serious? Would they see that he's compassionate and caring and selfless? Because why is God spending you? God wants to spend you to bring others to him. But it also tells us, by the way, you were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 7.23, so don't become slaves of men. Just to sort of spend your whole life serving men and not representing Christ. Then you wake up one day and stand before him and it's like you might as well have just stayed in God's wallet. I kind of understand why then. The psalmist says in Psalm 39.4, Teach me to know my end, the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Psalm 90, verse 12, where it says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Hear me as we go to prayer. What the Lord really wants to do with every one of us today is to just sit down with us for a moment and say, I've given you this life. Spend it wisely. Spend it on more than something that will be gone with the age. So in the end of it all, all you have is a, uh, a token, a memento. I, mean, I don't want my life to be that. I don't want my life to be one that it like makes for a nice plaque someday. So here lies, what? The guy that was nice to people? I don't want it to be this, and I most certainly do not want it to be this. For in the end of it all, it was printed in defiance to declare war and then lost. And I know people like this, do you? They think they're so smart. And they're being spent for a losing army that's already lost. They just don't know it. And they think somehow that the brilliance that they think that they've received on their own by accident, by chance, is going to be able to outwit the God who built their brains. 
that is complete insanity. So here's my prayer. And I want us to take a moment because we have the time here. And I want to pray for all of us and me too. But then my prayer is you maybe find someone, find a friend, find somebody that's a new friend now. And take a moment and pray. God, show me how to spend Monday in a way so that you'll be thankful. Let's face it. Have you bought anything lately you were proud of that you're really happy about, you still like? And you're like, oh, so glad I got this. This was a good investment. Have you bought anything lately that you regretted? You know, something that looked really awesome on the hanger? Hey, look, at if it's got a better shape on the hanger than it does on us, I think we need to do something about that. You know, I mean, it does for me, by the way. I don't know what it is. Those hangers are magic. But you, know, you buy it and you're like, oh, this is awesome. This is going to look great. And then you put it on later and you're like, what in the world? What, what is this? Boy, am I sad I got this. And there are certain times where, let's face it, you could spend an awful lot of money on food, but let's face it, once you're done with the food, the money you spend, it isn't like you have anything to show for it. Well, maybe you have something to show for it, but it's nothing you're proud of. I mean, the reason I say that is, unless there's some kind of eternal aspect to that, in the end of it all, you could be happy for the moment, but it's gone as quickly as you've spent it. What is the one thing you know you could be spent on that you know you won't regret when you stand before God? When we say him, that seems like the obvious answer. But if we were to ask him, I'm sure he what he would tell us is each other. Because truth be told, we give ourselves to him at his spending, and then God's the one who does this spending. When we say, I'm currency in your hand, God, where do you think God's going to spend you? Why do you think he has you in your jobs? Why do you think he's placed you where he's placed you? Because truth be told, in the end, he wants to spend you there. Spend you in such a way that every shilling of moment that you have, every crown day that you have, will be a day well spent. Even if what you did is just said, God, I'm available, and I'm going to walk and pray with you today, and if you want to make me speak, have me speak. If you want me to be silent and pray, I'll be silent and pray. But start with this. Ask God to bring into your scope people to pray for. And you start with perhaps the people you're going to school with that you're actually working with. And the first thing you realize is you're just praying for people. But I've learned this. It's a lot easier to minister to people you've been praying for. So how was that for a simple first step? All right, God, I want to walk with you. I want to pray for the people you put in front of me. Then as that happens, I know I'm communicating with God. And God goes, now go talk to that person. And you're like, about what? God says, I'll show you when you get there. And you're like, I'd like to know now. God goes, no, you've been praying. Let's go. And you realize at that moment, you're going, oh my goodness, I'm being spent. I'm being spent in a way that when I stand before him, I'll say thank you. Thank you for seeing me as a sound investment, because I really want to be one. Paul says at the end of his life, I will gladly be spent. And I'm being spent. I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith. Paul knew that he was glad to be spent. I pray we would too. As we go to prayer, I know this, that God knows how to spend perfectly. And the one that he spent perfectly was his son, who the currency of eternity came down to earth, clothed in flesh, 
and died on a cross for your sin and my sin, just like Scripture promised, because God had His Son to spend, because that was the price He had to pay to purchase you. And when Jesus died on that cross, He paid your price, mine too. And as He was buried, that money went into the till. And as He rose newness of life, He has the right to be our Lord as well as our Savior. Because now we are His for His leading and His loving. Have you accepted that gift of Jesus Christ? That's where it starts as a choice. But if you have, then we would say today, Lord, spend me then. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, thank you so much for the beauty of your word. For the richness, God. For the richness of your word and what you speak to us. And I pray today that in this room, Lord, we would do some serious reevaluation. Show us, Lord, where our lives are being spent that have no eternal consequence whatsoever where the foolish spending of our life is taking place. Or even worse yet, where our lives are being spent investing in the enemy confederacy that we know has already lost. And God, there I pray that you would give us a heart to change, to, to change our minds, to be properly spent. To be at that place, Lord, where it isn't like one day when this age is over and we stand before your presence. That the currency that we were has no relevance anymore to the eternity that we stand before because somehow everything we did has now been made redundant. God, give us a hunger for eternity and a hunger to be spent by the king for the king for his kingdom. So, Lord, we just commit ourselves to you today. And we pray today, Lord, that you would move in our hearts and make us people who glorify you. That when they look, they see your image upon us as we're being conformed again and refreshed in your image. So, Lord, have your way, we pray. And may our lives from this day forth be spent properly. We confess Jesus as our payment, just as Scripture promised. And you tell us that if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, that we'll be saved. And we want to make that choice. Now look at, if we've already made that choice, Lord, and you know many of us here have, We just want to renew that before you right now. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We just want to tell you, Lord, we're yours. We do believe Jesus paid our price. He was the one. He was the payment. And as he paid the price for us, we are now yours. We're not our own. We belong to you. So we commit ourselves to you, declaring Jesus is our Lord and Savior, resurrected King, And we say now our lives are yours. Spend us wisely. As I know you will. And I know it will be 
to draw others to you so that when we stand before you, we will see the beauty of the internal, eternal investments of other human beings into your kingdom. So, Lord, whether that's to sow or to plant or to water or to reap, God, use our time to glorify you and to bring others to you. As we're your currency, spend us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.